0: Turning your Bibles to the book of Philippians, we'll be looking at chapters, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, 8, 9-ish. It's kind of interesting, this is one of the, the passages that I'm, I'm most excited to preach through. One of the ones that's just been amazing to me, but one of the ones that I'm least prepared for. So lots of passion, and uh, not as thought through as I'd like, we'll see what happens and pray that God will... We'll bring a good result of it. But let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we come to you as your people in Christ. And just acknowledge at the very outset that we are only your people because of Christ. That, that our sin is an offense to you. It is odious in your sight. And, and you, you as a good God would be just and ought to uh, separate us from you for all of eternity for what we have done. But we thank you for Christ and how, uh, though our sin is like scarlet, it becomes white. Our lives become white as snow with the death and resurrection of Christ. And Lord, as we notice the snow falling uh, on the ground today, let us remind, let that be a reminder to us that, that you cover us. You cover our wickedness and our brokenness. You cover our sin, our, our motives that we want nobody to see because we know how dark they are. You cover those with the blood of Christ, that we may come to you complete and acceptable and accepted in Christ. So, Lord, as we come to you this morning to worship you and to learn from your word, as we, in some sense, sit at your feet learning from your word that you are addressing to us, because it is, it is your word that we are looking at today. And we sit at your feet learning from you, and we, we come to you complete in Christ Hoping to and longing to know you more and then conform our lives more and more to the image of Christ. So it is with that goal that we come to you. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to have deep repentance in our hearts. Help us to see that not only are our actions at times not according to your word and according to your holiness, but but also our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Lord, let us repent at a deep level, hating the sin that so easily entangles us and calls us to, to want to follow you as we understand the resources that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray particularly thinking about our relationships. We pray that our, the relationships we have with others, uh, starting in the church, that they would mirror the way that... That the body of Christ ought to be the love that Christ has for us, we would have for one another. So we pray as we look at a passage that addresses that, you would be transforming us and making us into a people that, that love you and love one another. We pray also that the relationships with those outside the church would be, uh, also reflect the love that Christ has for us. As we live out our Christian life at the office place or at school or in our families. We pray that the relationships with others in those contexts would, be, would mirror the, um, the love and life of Christ. So we pray you would help those things as we look at a passage that addresses that. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, relationships, as we're talking about in the prayer, relationships are hard work, aren't they? And, and they don't always give us the kind of joy and happy feelings that we would like. And I don't just mean relationships in, in marriage or romantic relationships, but you know across the board, in church, uh, in, in our home life, at our office place, in school. Sometimes they are a source of pain. Sometimes we go into a, a conversation with a friend hoping to feel refreshed and relaxed and encouraged, and yet we end up feeling stung and it hurts. And maybe we ask ourselves, how is it that I end up being at odds with this person? Well it feels like there shouldn't be. We we feel like we should get along fine, and yet and yet we have that difficulty and, and we're wondering what happened and why is that. Well, the the Bible gives us clear instructions for what we ought to do in this area. And last week Keith preached a great sermon uh, explaining that from this passage. And we looked at a pass at verses like In Philippians uh, 2, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, friends, if we were doing that, wouldn't that solve so many of our relational difficulties? I mean, really, let's be honest with ourselves. How much of the relationship problems do we uh, uh, have because we're actually considering the opposite? We're considering that we are more important than other people. And so we, uh, we want our agenda to be imposed in the relationship. And we want... We don't really listen to what they have to say because, quite frankly, we think that our thoughts are more important than theirs. And if we do listen, we don't always remember because we don't really consider what their thoughts are and what they've said to be that weighty. And then we say things and make requests to others without thinking about what kind of imposition that's going to impose on them. We do all this because we think we're more important than the other person. And if we would apply this passage... ...consider others more important than ourselves, we would get away from a lot of that. And, and the other thing this passage tells us is to be humble. It says to, to do that, to consider one another more important than ourselves in humility of mind. Humility would fix everything as well, wouldn't it? And in fact, it's our pride that gets in the way. But the problem is you can't just, you know, turn on a switch and be humble. You can't be in the midst of an argument and decide, okay, I'll be humble now... It doesn't work like that. And so often when we try to, you know, force humility, it ends up just being a, a, a display of pride. I remember one time I was sitting down to write an email to make a request to someone, and I was trying to sound as humble as I could while still making the request. And And I realized later, wait a minute, I'm not being humble. I'm, I'm trying to appear humble to manipulate the person. Um, that's pride. That's, that's not considering one another more important than ourselves. We, we can't just, you know, just flip a switch in our hearts and make these things happen. You know the, the instructions are clear. Consider one another more important than yourself. Ha, be humble. And if we did that, we would be good. Uh, but we don't. And we can't just turn that on. And see, The Bible recognizes that. So the passage that we're going to look at this morning, starting in Philippians 2, verse 5 really takes that great exhortation that we looked at last week and then helps us see how we do it. It's sort of like it gives us the resources that we need in order to do this thing that he calls us to do. So our goal is to look at this passage and see the resources that God has provided that we can have this kind of life in our relationships with others. But let me... Let me give you a warning about what's ahead as we do this. Now, I know given that introduction, people have various uh, expectations for what's going to follow about resources. Maybe some of you are thinking it's a kind of self-help how-to. Okay, say this, do this. Others are thinking it's something different. Well, well, if you listen to the passage that's all in red, you, you realize that the passage that we're going to look at is extremely deep theologically. I mean, We're talking about the incarnation of Christ. We're talking about how God becomes man while still being God, and he has two distinct natures in one person. I mean, we're, we're dealing with deep waters here. You know, it's like our, we go to a lake sometimes, and our, we tell our kids we like them to stay by the shore so it's nice and shallow and they can play, but inevitably they want to go out a little bit deeper. And then it's a good thing because that'll help them, and we take them out deeper. Well, in this passage, Paul here is taking us into deep waters, And we're going to get into some complex theology. And I feel like it's my goal, my job as as the preacher, to to really just preach whatever comes. So we're going to look at this more complicated theology. We're going to let Paul lead us out into these deep waters. But what you need to remember is that Paul's point in going into these deep waters, it's not just to fill our heads with knowledge. It's not so we can get the right answers on a theology test if that was asked. It's so that we can encounter Christ and then have the kind of life, particularly in our relationships with one another, that flows out of that encounter with Christ, that flows out of that life of Christ. So we're going to go into these deep waters for for a reason, to get more of Christ, that he might be reflected in our relationship with others. And, you know, maybe you're here and you are struggling relationally with people. Maybe that's going to be the way that God is going to lead you to understand more about Christ. I think in my my own life and some of the the encounters that I had where I understood Jesus better and I understood the salvation in him better were motivated because I was struggling with my own sin issues and I knew that I needed more resources to, to fight this. And what I did is just kept trying to understand what it meant to be in Christ more. And through that, so I could have more resources in him. And through that, I was led into a greater understanding of Christ. So perhaps God has put you in a relational difficulty so that these resources will be precious to you. And not only will you then maybe have a little bit more relational uh, peace, a little bit better time in your relationships with others, that may or may not happen, but the even deeper goal is that you will know Christ better. You will know him more. So with that in mind, let's swim out into these deep waters And let us see how the resources in Christ need to be lived out in our lives. Look with me at verse 5 here, Philippians chapter 2. This is the the main thing we're going to spend most of our time in. We'll be in these verses through Christmas because there's so much in here. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want us to think about that. Let me read it again. and Just think about what it says there. And I understand some versions have different things. If you you have another version, it might say something. But this is the ESV, the English Standard Version. And that's the one we're going to go with. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, this mind is really pointing back to what we looked at last week. It is that, as Keith said, mindset, where we are in humility, considering one another more important than ourselves. We are having the same love. Um, This is the mindset that emulates Christ. Christ, as we will see, did not seek his own advantage, but he emptied himself. He he did what is best for others. Have that mind. Have that kind of mindset. Have the kind of mindset where you are considering others more important than yourselves. Paul really clearly illustrated this mindset in chapter 1. When he was in jail, remember, he's writing this from prison. And he has a, a death sentence hanging over his head. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And people are trying to hurt him in his ministry. They're trying to offend him and shame him. And yet, Paul is, is happy because the gospel's going out. Uh, that really epitomizes this mindset of not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about what is good for others. Paul is thrilled that the gospel is going out, even though it, it is his own expense. That's the kind of mind that we're told to have. Have this mind but but we still haven't realized how we get it. Have this mind, and then notice what Paul says afterward, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, the mind we need to have it is yours in Christ Jesus let's let's think about what Paul's saying there. if we just kind of look at that sentence grammatically, he is he is asking us to have something that is already ours. How does that work? I mean, suppose we—I walk out with you in the parking lot and I point to your car and say, "Hey, have this car that you purchased." You'd look at me kind of strange. Or I have a gift for you. It's your own car. Like, no, that's that's mine. You—you you can't tell me to have the car that's already mine. Well, what does Paul mean? I mean, that's the, that's the gr- the grammar that he's talking about. How does he tell us to have something that is already ours? Well, what he means here. Is really that we use what is already ours, that we already have resources. We need to use them. Now let me give you an analogy, and it's a little bit of a complex analogy. But again, we're we're going out into deep water, so of course the analogies become complex. Um, last year, I got a uh, an iPhone. It is on silent, so we won't have the problem we did two weeks ago. I hope yours is too. Um, but uh, yeah, last week, uh, two weeks ago, my own phone rang during the sermon. If you, if you weren't here, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, so I got the, the iPhone because I needed to organize my life and my time better. I have a lot of, get a lot of emails, have a lot of appointments, have a lot of things I try to schedule to do. And it was just so much easier to have it all here. So at the beginning of my week, I, I kind of plan out my week, mark out the tasks that I want to do, and then my phone just tells me what to do, and I do it. You could have great control of my life if you could tap into my iPhone. <laughs> I just blindly obey it, right? But um, I I got the iPhone so that I could have uh, a more organized life. And it seems to be working, to some degree at least. Um, But imagine, say a different scenario happened. Imagine I had the iPhone, and yet I was still not replying to emails. I was still missing appointments. I was still not getting done what I needed to do. and, And my life still was terribly unorganized. Well, maybe somebody, perhaps one of the deacons, perhaps somebody close to me who loved me, perhaps somebody was frustrated with me, I don't know, sat down, and they would basically say to me, okay, look, Mike, you need to have the kind of organized life that is already yours because of your iPhone, right? They would say, you have the resources, they're right there. You just need to use them. And and that's what they would tell me. They wouldn't be telling me that I needed to go out and get something new that I didn't have already. They would be telling me that I need to make use of what I already have what paul is saying here have this mind which is yours in christ jesus you have the mind it is yours in christ you're in christ so you have the mind by virtue of being in christ he's telling you you need to use it you need to make use of it and now how does he do that well it's very interesting the next thing paul does is he tells us about christ The mind of Christ we get through Christ. And so Paul, if he's going to explain to us how we have this mind, he explains to us more about who Christ is. And that tells us something very interesting there. He tells us that the salvation that we have in Christ is having Christ. One person put it this way, to know Christ is to know his benefits. And to know the benefits of Christ is to know Christ. There's not an a aspect of salvation that we don't have by virtue of having Christ. Salvation is not God giving us various discrete gifts. It is God giving us Christ. And to have Christ is to have salvation. So Paul, in order to help us understand how we have this mind in Christ, then explains to us about who Christ is. And let me read that passage, starting at verse 6, Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is who Christ is. This is what Christ has come to do. And knowing this Christ is how we have the mind of Christ. Uh, The starting point for all this is who Christ is as God. Notice verse 6. He existed in the form of God. Uh, Form here means manifestation. How he appears. Christ appears in the form of God. And there's only one reason why Christ would appear in the form of God. And that is that he is God. The only way to be in the form of God is to be God. Christ is in the form of God because Christ is God. And that means that all that is true of God is true of Christ. Who God is, Christ is. Christ is not lacking anything that God is. He is in the form of God. And we see this in the Gospels. John 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying there? He's saying that his earthly life was not the beginning of his existence. Before Abraham, who was 2,000 years before Christ. Jesus already existed as the absolute God. We see this even more in John 17. Jesus says to God, Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Christ was in the form of God. He had the glory with God before the uh, creation of the world. And that is, Christ is in the form of God. Christ has glory and power and majesty, splendor. Christ was there at the beginning of the creation of the world. It is through Christ that the world has been made. Christ knows the hairs on everybody's heads. Christ created everything. Christ is worthy of all glory and majesty. And then he did something utterly amazing. He didn't consider his godhood a thing to be used for his own advantage. He emptied himself. What this passage says he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means he didn't hold on to his God nature for his own purposes, but he emptied himself. And we see how he emptied himself here by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We'll look at that, Lord willing, more next week. But what that's saying is the way he emptied himself was not by really getting rid of anything of his nature. He's still fully God. But he adds humanity to his divinity. It is not God turning into man. It is rather God taking on humanity. That he would live his life. He's God, but he will live his life in human form. He will live his life with the manifestation as a human. With all the humanness of it. And he is God. So he took on human form, but not only that, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. People have described this, quite fittingly, as Christ's descent into hell. For Christ, it got from bad to worse. He, he takes on the form of a man, but not just any man. He's treated like a servant and, or a slave, rather. You could translate that probably better, slave. But not just any slave, a slave who is killed. And not just any t- way of being killed, killed on a cross. The most humbling, cruel, disgraceful forms of, of death devised. The Old Testament said that cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. This, this God-man is cursed. He's put on a tree. And now what, is, what this text really emphasizes here, and what is utterly amazing too, is that he did this all voluntarily. No one forced him to do this. Christ emptied himself. The verb is reflexive. He did it to himself. He was not emptied. No one forced it upon him. He took the form of a servant. He was not forced into that role. He doesn't just say he was killed. It says he was obedient to the point of death. He, he went to the cross willingly. It wasn't that he was killed like John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King were killed, not of their own volition. No, he was obedient to go to the cross and die. It's interesting that about this passage, Greek scholars have pointed out how the same categories that are used for Christ here also appear in, in uh, stories about the tragic hero. Now, I don't think that in any way means that the Bible's based on those stories. I think it's rather the other way around. Those epic stories in human history are actually based on the, the grand narrative of the Bible. But see, a tragic hero is somebody who enjoys a good position and then for some reason uh, falls from that position and then has to climb back up. So think of Homer's Odyssey or... Or many of these other stories about this hero that that goes, that falls, and then goes back up. Christ here is presented in similar terms. He's God, he goes to the form of a servant, dies, and then is exalted at the end. But see, there's one very important distinction between Christ and the tragic hero stories. Christ did this all voluntarily. He, He took it upon himself. It's also true that he didn't gain anything by taking on the form of a servant. You see, he's God. And by definition, he has no lack in anything, right? He's not saying, hey, I'm going to take the form of a servant and it's going to be a move that's going to help me advance in the ranks of the Trinity. Of course not. He has everything. He has nothing to gain by doing this. And yet, he emptied himself by adding humanity. He's coming down in human form. Friends, as we approach Christmas time, we're going to see illustrations of the incarnation all over the place. I mean, we're, we're decorated for Christmas. Thank you to those who did that, by the way. And looks, looks great. It reminds us of the Christmas season. We'll see, we'll see lights. We'll see nativity scenes all over the place. And, and because it's such a part of our culture, it's tempting to not appreciate the magnitude of what happened there. God became man. God, who exists in perfect glory, took on human form. Without ceasing to be God, he clothed himself in human form. The baby that's lying in the manger is God. Yet he chose to veil that glory that he has in human flesh. And he did it for us, for our salvation. Now, it's a good point for me to just locate this Passage, this God becoming man, in, in the grand story of how Paul is locating it here. I think when Paul writes this in Philippians, he has in his mind something that happened many years before this. And that is in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then think about what happened there. Many of you know it, but if you don't, here's what happened God created uh, the, the world and he made two people, Adam and Eve, and put them in the perfect garden. They were perfect. They hadn't done anything wrong. And he told them that they could eat from any of the trees in the garden, but from one tree they couldn't eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, if you eat it, you will die. And then, as many of you know, Satan slithered into that garden, and he told them that they wouldn't die, but they would be, remember what he said? Like God, right? Satan tempted them by by having them aspire to be like God. And and not a a godliness that you and I would want to have to reflect God's holiness. No. This is a kind of like God where, where you rival him for his position. I want to be God. That's the kind of like God he has. So that's what the temptation was. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And they fell and they corrupted the whole human race. Now what does Christ do? Christ is God. He has that God-likeness already in him. He has that external, that manifestation of glory. But what does he do? Unlike Adam, he doesn't consider that something to be used for his own advantage. But he empties himself. He's willing to give that up. Adam disobeyed God in order to get that for himself. Uh, Futile. He he didn't really get them for himself. That's what he tried to do. Christ, though he is God, empties himself, takes on the form of a servant. Now, now, Satan knows how he was able to create the fall of the whole human race by making Adam and Eve sin, and, or by leading them to sin. He didn't make them sin. He, he tempted them to sin. And he tries the same thing again on Christ. He leads Christ, or Christ is led into the wilderness, and Satan tempts him. And the temptation is for Christ to use his Godhood, to use his God qualities to his own advantage. That's that's what the temptation is. If you are the son of God, turn this bread into stone. What's he saying there? He's saying, use your God qualities to do something. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down and have the angels come and rescue you. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, show yourself off. Your glory is veiled. No one sees who you are. Make them know. Show them who you are. Be God. Show Show that godness he wasn't interested in showing off his glory for his own sake. He had come to serve. He had come to to serve others, to, to consider others more important than himself. And so the text says that Satan left him for a more opportune time. I think that was on the cross. When Christ hears from the crowd, if you are the son of God, come down from there. Again, a temptation, probably from Satan. Use your God qualities to show off who you are. And he could have, right? He could have come down from the cross, and the decision would be, do I, do I kill these people by fire, or do I open up the, wor- the ground and swallow them? I mean, he, he, could have, he could have done that because he's God, and yet he didn't, because he did not come to earth to show off his glory for his own advantage. He came to earth to love and serve others. So here is God, who possesses all glory and power the one from whom for him and all and to whom all things exist and yet he does not use his status as god to seek his own advantage instead he uses it for the advantage of others he uses it to pour his life out as a sacrifice for others now how does that help us understand what it means to be in christ and to have the mind of christ remember that's the application point we want the mind of christ the mind of christ's humility the mind of Christ's deference to others. That's what we, and we, we have that mind in Christ. Well, how does this help us? Well, a couple things. First, understand that this is the Christ that you are in. You are in Christ, the Bible says. And there's a, there's a connection. If, you, if you're a Christian, if you have placed your trust in Christ, you believe that his death is what forgives your sins, that's how you come to God. You're a Christian, the Bible says. And then, and then you are in Christ. And you can't see it. We can't see it with our eyes. But if we were to see things from God's perspective, what we would see is that between Christians and Christ, and then between Christians and other Christians, one another, there is a, there is a mystical connection. We are connected. There's a vital connection. Life flows from Christ to his people. We are in Christ. And even though we can't see it with our eyes, it is very real. We are in Christ, and this is the Christ we are in. We are in the Christ who emptied himself, who took on human form, who who did not use his Godhood as a way to gain advantage for himself. That is the Christ in whom we exist. And you see, really, if we could see another aspect of it, if we could kind of pull back reality, we would see that you are either in Christ or in Adam. That's the only option the Bible gives. All those who are not in Christ are in Adam. And those in Adam have the mindset of Adam, have the mind of Adam, the kind of mind that wants to rival God for his own position, the kind of mind that wants to use anything he or she can to gain advantage for him or herself and usurp God from his position. But if you are in Christ, then you have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ wants to serve others, wants to give himself for others. If you are in Christ, that is the kind of mind that you have. You see, it's somewhat obvious from this passage that Christ was our example. And we should understand that. We, we see what Christ did, and we see that that is the example that we ought to follow. We ought to, to be like Christ and not considering ourselves as most important, but, but do things for the sake of others. Christ is our example here, and that is part of what he helps us how he helps us, but you see, he's not merely our example. We can have many examples from history of this. I mean, think of um, in the news today, uh, Nelson Mandela, who was in many ways a great example of somebody who was not uh, trying to just do things for his own advantage, but but really helped a lot of other people. And there's there's a lot to celebrate about that. But and then we'll in a few uh, in a month or so observe Martin Luther King Day, and he's another person in history who who really used. His position to help other people. And I'm sure that at a personal level, there are many people you could point to in your life who've who've not done stuff just to serve themselves, but to help you. Uh, Moms are often great examples of that. Many people look to their mother. Not everybody, but some people look to their mother as someone who was not seeking what is good from them, but pouring themselves out for others. We have lots of examples of that in this world. But see, an example alone is not going to change our nature. And see, that's why Christ needed to be more than just a good example. It's not just that we see what he did, and then we can follow it. Because in our hearts, we don't have the resources to follow him in and of ourselves. It's that he changes our nature, that he puts us in him. And in him, we have those resources and that ability. You know, it's important here to understand that when Christ lived his life and and made these hard choices to humble himself, he did it with a human mind. I think one of our temptations in this evangelical culture is to think of Christ as more of just, yeah, he might have looked human, but he's got all the powers of God. Well, in one sense, that's true. But see, the whole point of this passage is that he lived out his life as a human so, yes, he's God, and he is very conscious of the fact that he's God. He knows that he is God, but yet he knows that in a human mind. And he has human-like thoughts. I don't mean sinful thoughts at all in that, but I mean the thoughts that a human would have. We, he thinks in a similar way with a brain like us, is human feelings, human emotions. He is God living out his life as a human, although without sin, perfectly. And that is why when we have the mind of Christ, we have a mind that we can actually use to follow him because he's given, he's lived out the kind of life that we need to live through a human mind. And to have the mind of Christ then is to be able to live out that life as well. So that is who Christ is and that is what it means to be connected to him. Now, what do we do? Let me give you three things. First, depend upon him, depend upon him. And you see, we need to realize that passages like this tell us that the Christian life is not just that we think the right thoughts or that we can answer what is right to do in a particular ethical situation. That's not having the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is being united to a person and then living out that life with the help and aid and and life of that person. We have the Holy Spirit who was with Christ to help Christ in living out his human life to also be with us and cause us to follow him. So friends, think about this. When you're put in a tempting situation or when you're put in a situation where you feel the desire to be selfish, you know you know what that is for you. When maybe somebody makes a request to you and, and it rubs you the wrong way. What do you do? Are you Do you fall back on the resources within your own mind? Do you try to just think about what to do? That's my temptation, is to sort of analyze it to death. And and that doesn't usually produce great results. Or do you run to Christ and say, Lord, I need your mind. I need to think the way you do. I need your thoughts to flow into me that I might honor you in the way that I am supposed to. One of the things that this passage teaches us is that apart from Christ, we have no hope. It's, It's helpful, I think, to just admit and acknowledge and pray to God. Unless Christ helps me in this situation, I will sin and sin and sin all day. I need Christ to help me to do what I need to do. I need him to work and live through me. And just that dependence upon Christ it means that you know, when we do do what we ought to do, it doesn't point to our own glory, our own power. It points to the reality and sufficiency of Christ. So do you admit that to yourself? That apart from Christ, I have no chance. I remember, um, you know, and one of the things that I see, and I see a lot in ministry, is people who who are not thinking correctly, who who have the wrong priorities, who are, are sort of in a, in a place where they're, they're not honoring God, and they think to themselves, yep, yeah, I got this under control. I got this figured out. And, you know, they've deceived themselves into thinking that they've done it. They've deceived themselves into thinking that they're able to figure out this situation and know what to do and honor God. And I'm thinking, you, you need many more resources than what you have. They, they, they need to come alongside of other brothers and sisters in Christ. But most of all, they need Christ. They need to humbly depend upon him and not try to do it on their own resources. So, friends, are you daily depending upon Christ? Are you reading his word regularly? Are you coming to him in prayer? Number two, rehearse the gospel frequently. Rehearse the gospel frequently. Notice what Paul does here. When Paul seeks to tell us about Christ, what does he tell us about Christ? He tells us what Christ did for us. That's not what he makes explicit, but anybody who reads this is going to know why it was that Christ emptied himself and took on human form. It wasn't just, you know, for his own sake. That's obvious. But it explicitly was so that he could die on the cross as a payment for our sins. He humbled himself. He took on human form to to lay his life out for us. And friends, in order to have that mind of Christ, to be able to then care for others in the way Christ has cared for us, it is really helpful to have in our minds very clearly how Christ has cared for us. So go over the gospel in your minds frequently. Understand your need for his death and resurrection, that, that you needed the God of perfect glory to take on human flesh and be slaughtered in the most cruel death imaginable. You needed that in order to be saved. So friends, that is, that is so helpful. Rehearse the gospel in your minds often. And finally... Do this in community. Do this in community. Because notice what Paul says here. He doesn't just say, have this mind that is in Christ. What part did I miss there? Have this mind among yourselves that is in Christ. And that among yourselves brings in the fact that you're doing it in community you are living out this Christian life with others. There's something about the community, the, the church, the Christian community that helps us so much in living out this kind of life. We're not just doing it ourselves. We, in the community, we see other examples. We have others who hold us accountable for how we live and talk to one another. The church should exist. And really, think about how God has put us in a church and he's given different people different gifts so nobody can do it all themselves. And he's called us to use one another's gifts to do what we need to do. We can't do it without each other. And that's not a weakness. That's by design. Nobody has all the gifts necessary for the church. Nobody has all the gifts necessary to care for one another. That is why God has put us together. But in order for us then to work together, we need to have that humility to consider others important, to value their gifts, though they are different than ours. So the way this is practiced, the way this is lived out, is in community. God has put us there for a reason. So, yes, amen. So, friends, what do we see here? Well, we see an awesome example of God's love for us in Christ, that the Son would take on human form, live a life of, of humiliation, and then die a cruel and painful death. And that is, not, that is a few things. It is an example for us to follow, But then he also gives us his life that we're able to do that. And he does it for us that we can understand his forgiveness and his love and then show that to one another. So, friends, let us in this Christmas season appreciate more the the life of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we just thank you for giving us Christ. We thank you for his humiliation, for him taking on human form, and we thank you how he did that, not, not simply to forgive us our sins and change something about how you see us, but then actually to change our nature, to make us like you, to give us a new mind. Oh, Lord, we pray that through him, we would genuinely love one another. We would consider others more important than ourselves. Father, work in us real humility that through our life together, your life would be seen. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.